If you are under the age of 20, you can come on up. Sorry. Most of my teenagers have already left, so. And the rest of you can stay back there if you want. You don't have to come up. Earlier this, this morning, Miss Evelyn read us a really cool story out of the Bible. And I wanted to read you the same story, but written from a different perspective. The man who wrote this story, his name is Mark. Do you guys know anybody named Mark? I know. I don't know anybody named Mark, but Mark is the guy, one of the guys from the Bible. He was a friend of Jesus. And this is what he wrote, talking about this story about how Jesus became shiny and sparkly and crazy. It was, have you ever been sparkly? No. You wear, cause maybe you can wear sparkly things and you can have sparkles and glitter all over the stuff that you have, but to have your whole body be sparkly and shiny, that's crazy. Let me read it to you. After six days, Jesus took with him up onto a mountain his friends Peter and James and John, just those three and Jesus went up there by themselves. And while they were up there, Jesus became transfigured. Did you hear that word? Transfigured. He literally changed in the way that he was, the way his body was. His clothes became bright and shiny they were so white that you couldn't even bleach something to make it whiter than that. And there appeared to James and John and Peter, along with Jesus, there was also Elijah and Moses. And they were standing there talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Um, we could make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Because Peter didn't know what to say, so he just said something silly because he was so scared. That's what it says right here. And it said as soon as he said that, guess what happened? Shane, guess what happened? A cloud came down out of the sky and made it so that they couldn't see anything. Have you ever been like in a heavy fog? Have you ever been where you can't see the road because the fog is so bad? That's what happened. The cloud came down and covered them all. And all of a sudden, out of the cloud, this voice came. And it said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And you know what happened with Peter and James and John? They got scared. And they fell on the ground and they covered their face. They're like, oh, oh, we're so scared. And then... And then Jesus came up to them and said, hey, guys, guys, it's okay. And when they looked up, the cloud was gone and Moses was gone and Elijah was gone and Jesus looked normal again. And then they came down off the mountain and Jesus told them as they were walking, I know you saw something really cool and I know you saw something really special, but you can't talk about it until after I'm dead, and then raised back from the dead. Okay? Don't say anything about it till after I die, and I'm raised back from the dead. And Peter and James and John went, Okay! What do you mean he's going to come back from the dead? Because see, they didn't understand at that point. They didn't understand. But what was so cool 
They literally, this is what happened with James and John and Peter. They literally saw into heaven. It was as if the door to heaven opened up and they got to see all the glory of God. The shiny, the sparkly, the brilliant white. It was incredible. And you know what they did? They fell down and were afraid because that's how powerful God is. He's so big and so strong and so mighty that us human beings, we just get so scared when we're in his presence. But he loves us and he takes care of us. And he's like the song said this morning, Shane, Shane, I need to be quiet for a minute. Like the song said this morning, he's bigger, better, stronger than anything that we have. And God will take care of each one of us. So let's pray. And ask him to take care of our families, our moms and our dads and our siblings. And I pray, Father, that you be with these kids as well. Help them, Jesus, to come into a true, vital, and real relationship with you. Where they can depend on you for everything, Lord. And know that your glory is more powerful than anything they'll face on this earth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, you guys can go back and sit with your folks. Or go back to your room with your teacher. Today is known as Transfiguration Sunday in the church calendar. What does that mean? That means this is the day that Jesus was transfigured. Not really. It's just the day that the church recognizes that story and celebrates it. And as a pastor and a preacher, I hate this Sunday. Because it's hard to talk about something that you don't know anything about. You know what I mean? I mean, I can't really imagine what Peter and James and John experienced up on that mountain. You heard what I just told the kids. That's the best I can do. I mean, I was, when I was in high school, I lived in Southern California. And I won't name the park, but there's a very famous, famous amusement park. Not the one with the mouse. The other one with Snoopy. We won't go any farther than that to identify it. But they had a little chapel on their property. And it didn't cost anything to go into this chapel. It was, an, it was an, an, an amusement, but it was not anything that you had to pay money for. And you would go in and sit down, and there would be beautiful music playing in this little chapel. And then a voice would come out, and it would read the scripture that we just read. Matthew chapter 9. And there would be a curtain that would open up at the front. It's all automated. And there was a picture of uh, an, arting, an artist drawing or painting of Jesus. And then when it said, and he was transfigured before, all of a sudden the lights went out and black lights came on and Jesus glowed like a black light poster. And it was so cheesy and so it just took away from the glory of what this story actually is. But anytime I think about the transfiguration, I go right to that chapel. I'm like, that's the best we can do. That's the be- now back. This is back in the 70s when we didn't have all of the technology that we have today. Probably could have been a little bit better today. We might have even had a hologram then, but then nobody's going to invest that money now because nobody cares. But one of the things that uh, one of the things that that was incredibly ex- exciting about this event in the in the life of the of the, of the, of the three guys 
They literally got a glimpse of heaven. That's literally what they did. Now, I, I can give you another one. John, same guy, James, John, Peter. John wrote the book of Revelation. And if you look in the very first chapter of Revelation, at the very last verses of the first chapter, John said, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a fire, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Hear those words. His face was like the sun, shining in its full strength. Have you ever tried to look at the sun? I remember as a kid, when there was an eclipse, we had to use welder's masks to look at the sun for fear that it would damage our eyes. Because there's that much energy coming off. It could literally blind you by damaging your retina. That's the power of the sun. So John is describing Jesus in his vision of Jesus in heaven as having a face that was as bright and powerful as the sun. And what was his response? Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. That's what happens when human beings come face to face with God. Now, there's one other person that we're told that had a regular face-to-face meeting with God, and that was Moses. If you remember that story, we don't, we're not going to take the time to go back and read it, but if you want to go back later on, it's, it's in Exodus chapter 33 and Exodus chapter 34. And basically what happened was Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and spent 40 days up there with God. And then he came down with the word of God. And it says in that passage that Moses' face shined. There is um, the word that is translated shined can actually be translated as shined or like horns. And the idea of horns would be like, like spotlights coming out of his head. Okay, so you'll even see some some Renaissance artwork of Moses with him with horns. And what that's actually depicting is the glory of God reflecting off of, shining out of Moses' face with rays of glory. That's the best humans can do. But Moses, every time he would go to see God, for lack of a better way of saying it, got nuked. I don't know how else to describe it. He's got nuked. He's glowing from the power of God that he was in presence of. And it scared the Israelites so badly to see a human being with a face that glowed that Moses started covering his face with a veil. And the only time he took that veil off was A, when he was in the presence of God, talking face to face with God, or B, when he came out of that presence and was communicating with the people of God the words of God. And once he was done communicating the words of God, he put the veil back on. 
That was how Moses spent pretty much the rest of his life. Because it said in verses in Exodus 33 and 34 that Moses went daily to the tent of meeting. His, his associate, his, mentor, his apprentice, Joshua, never left the tent. Moses would go back and forth because Moses had other responsibilities and duties. But every single day, Moses would walk through the camp and people would come to the edges of their, of their tents to watch Moses walking to go meet with God face to face. And he would have his face covered by this veil. Well, all of that sounds really cool. Still don't have much of a point of reference for it. When I was in high school, though, when I first got saved, let let me back that up. This week, God had positioned it so that my schedule was clear enough so I had enough hours at one time to go ahead and do something that I've been wanting to do for months and months and months. I had been getting feedback that our church's website was, was just ugly, defunct, didn't really do much for anybody. So I spent hours this week trying to refashion it. You can go out and look at it if you want. Tell me how bad it is because I'm not a graphics person and I'm not an artist. This is, I did the best I could. But one of the things that I did was you click on my picture, the picture of me and Renee, and it opens up another page and then it gives you my biography. And in my biography I wrote... I've been read, uh, excuse me, I wrote, in 1975, at the age of 16, Pastor Bob began to recognize that his personal religion is more a ritual than an authentic practice. Now, let me stop by saying I really prayerfully crafted this paragraph. Why? Because I realized anybody, regardless of who they were, would, that clicked on that picture would have an opportunity to read these words, and I wanted them to know that they have hope in Christ. I wanted them to hear the gospel in this paragraph. I wanted to communicate what it means to truly have a right relationship with God. So I tried very hard to be careful with my words. So I said, in 1975, at the age of 16, Pastor Bob began to recognize that his personal religion was more a ritual than an authentic practice. He loved God, but he was just going through the motions. He recognized that he was truly sorry for his sins, for his sinful heart, for his actions. And so on October 25th, 1975, Bob confessed and repented of his sins. And you hear those words, confessed and repented. And surrendered his heart to God and made a personal profession of faith in Jesus as his Savior. Again, that that wording was very specifically prayerfully crafted to communicate what it means to, to become a Christian. To go from being a pagan to a believer. To go from being a sinner to someone who is saved by Christ. Bob then went on a long meander through various Christian faith groups. And in 1978, he finally settled into membership in the Church of the Nazarene. Actually, he met a beautiful blonde woman who happened to be the pastor's daughter, which was a strong motivator. And then my bio continues. But... When I wrote that, or as I wrote that, um, I obviously was thinking about that time in my life and about becoming a Christian and what it was like for me as a Christian. And then as I was reading this passage about the transfiguration, and I was trying to think how I could communicate to you, because I said I had no point of reference. And all of a sudden, God reminded me that when I first got saved at the age of 16 in Southern California, There was a woman in my life who was a, a, she had graduated the year before from high school, so she was an adult already, but I mean, as far as I was concerned, she's still a kid. 
And her boyfriend was also an adult. He was a couple years older than me. So he's like 18, 19 years old. And I don't remember his name today, but he was kind of a mentor to me in the early days of my Christian walk. And I remember distinctly, I could not look him in the eye. Whenever I tried to look him in the eye, I felt sinful, awkward, uncomfortable, dirty. And I honestly, I reflected on it back then, and it's still true today. He had long, wavy brown hair that came to his shoulders. He had a brown beard. He had brown eyes. He looked like Jesus. This is back in 1975, which is people still wearing some hippie clothes. So he looked like Jesus, but he looked like Jesus. There was something about him that made me think that Jesus was right there in the room with me. And for years since then, I mean, I've been a Christian for almost 50 years now. But for years since then, I have thought back about it. I don't remember that guy's name to save my life. Someday I hope to see him in heaven and we'll catch up and see what happened with him. But, but I remember distinctly, this man knew Jesus so well that he glowed Jesus. And that's the closest that I can come to describing to you what I think this whole thing about Moses and the, the glowing of his skin after being in the presence of God and, the, um, and even Peter's vision of Jesus and the transfiguration. I mean, that's the best I can come up with is I can't look you in the eye because it's too painful for me because I feel unworthy. I feel dirty. I feel less than. That's the best I can offer you guys in trying to understand what this is all about. But the thing that is so crazy, if you're a Christian and you've been reading the scriptures for any length of time, when you get into the New Testament, Paul poo-poos all of that veil over the face stuff. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 18. Paul says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for even to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I love that verse. 
I love, 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 love that verse. It's supposed to be on the screen. For some reason, it didn't get brought up, and that's okay. I don't know why. It's Again, technology was not my friend this week. So, But that verse, verse 18, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. But my question is this, why would Paul be so poo-poo about the veil over Moses' face? That was a huge thing in their culture. That was a huge thing that God himself met face to face with Moses. And to the point that Moses' face glowed and it scared her, but he had to cover his face with a veil. If you go to the story in the Gospels, excuse me, and I think, if I remember correctly, it was Mark. I forgot to mark it. I think it was Mark. Yeah, here it is. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a raid, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, this centurion said, truly, this man was the Son of God. In the moment of Jesus' death, when Jesus declares, it is finished, God supernaturally causes an earthquake to happen in Jerusalem at that exact moment. And as a result of the the building shaking, this heavy, thick curtain, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, that made it only that it it separated the, the, the worship place from the place that only the person could go in once a year to make atonement for all of the people. It tore that veil from top to bottom, opening and making possible access to the mercy seat to God for all people. The veil that Moses wore, Paul is saying in Corinthians, was hiding the fact that that covenant, that law, all of that was, it was fading away. It was not God's permanent plan. God's permanent plan was that God was going to pay the penalty for our sin. God was going to, through his own son, take everything on so that we wouldn't have to. And in that moment, the veil was torn into all of us got access to that glory of God. All of us. Now, I told you that when I was 16, I began to struggle with who I was as a Christian. See, I had been reared to go to church. My parents took us to church nearly every Sunday. 
We were baptized when we were young. We went through instruction like Sunday school classes regularly. And we worshiped together as a family in church every single Sunday. Unless my dad wasn't home because my dad was in the Navy and then my mom would take us to church. But by the time I was 16, I started to recognize that there was a lot of style but not a whole lot of substance. I knew all the rituals. I knew what to do. I knew when to stand, when to sit, when to pray, when to beat my chest. I knew all of that. I knew the right words to say. No substance. And I began to see people in my life who were coming into vital faith on their own. And I started to long for that and desire that. And so as a result, over the course of a couple of years, from the age of 14 to the age of 16, I can look back and I can see how the prevenient grace of God was wooing me, drawing me to God, until ultimately on October 25th, 1975, At 11.30 at night, I stood in the driveway of this woman and I gave my heart to Christ. And God supernaturally, supernaturally filled me with his peace at that instant. Now, has it been smooth sailing ever since? Nope. And I can be honest with you, one of the things that, that is a regret for me and I mean this sincerely, it's been almost 50 years. One of the things that's been a regret for me is I don't think that I have yet reached the point where any young Christian wouldn't be able to look me in the eye because they felt like they were looking into the face of Jesus. And that saddens me. Because quite honestly, as a young adult, as a young Christian, uh, that was a goal. And as I have reflected on that, This week, thinking about one of the things that God has made very apparent to me, and and, and this is not me saying, oh, woe is me, I'm a bad human being, but this this is the reality. God very clearly said, what did Moses do to glow? He came every day for a face to face with. When I was in Bible college, we, were, uh, we had a class on, uh, I don't remember what the class was called, but there was a, uh, one of the texts that we were required to read was a collection of short uh, excerpts out of various classical literature. One of the excerpts that we had to read was called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And I have read through the whole book a couple of times. And this week I was reminded of that. And for those of you who are not familiar, let me give you a real quick understanding. Brother Lawrence was a lay Carmelite. He was not a priest. He was not a, a, a monk. But he was a member of the Carmelite order. He worked as a lay person in the, in the monastery. His job was to run the kitchen. He joined that order at the age of 55. His whole life, his whole desire for his whole life from that moment forward was he wanted to know God intimately. 
And he tried. If you read through, he, the book that's called Practicing the Presence of God is actually a collection of letters that Brother Lawrence wrote. Oh, he was, he, was from, he was born in 1611. He died in 1691, I think. He was 80 years old when he died. So he lived during the 1600s. He had written a letter to a woman who had asked, how do you know God? And he began to have a correspondence with her. And Brother Lawrence's pastor collected and kept all of that correspondence. Brother Lawrence did not want it kept, but the pastor did anyway. And after Brother Lawrence's death, the pastor then published it. And this is what it has become down to us for, uh, as is this book called Practicing the Presence. But basically it was a series of letters written from a man who lived in a monastery who was trying to honor God with his life on, to a person who was seeking that. How do you do it? And this, these were his words to this person. Now, it's a full book. I don't have time this morning to give it to you. But the gist is this. He got to the point where he stopped beating himself up because he forgot to read the Bible that day. He got himself to the point where he stopped trying to follow the formulas that everybody else told him he needed to follow in order to be a good Christian. He even stopped worrying about praying at the right times and the right moments at the right places in the, in the monastery because that's what their life is. What he did was as he peeled potatoes, he talked to God. As he washed the pots, he talked to God. As he carried the trash to the compost pile, he talked to God. And if the food was already done and prepared and waiting for the meal to start, he sat down wherever he was. He didn't go to a place of prayer. He sat down wherever he was and he communed with God. He says he literally got to the point where he didn't even think about it anymore. He just did it. But it was 25 years practice and so I look at my life and I say God I know that I'm sold out to you I mean I wouldn't be a pastor in Alaska for heaven's sakes if I wasn't I know that I've devoted my life to you I know that I'm a follower I know that I love you with all of my heart my soul my mind and my strength but why don't I glow and God well spend some more time with me you want to glow, I can make you glow. Okay. So I'm going to pull that book back off the shelf, dust it off, just read through it. Not because I have to follow the principles that Brother, Brother Lawrence did, but just as a reminder to me that I need to make sure that it's every moment of every day and not just on Sunday. And not just on Wednesday night or Tuesday or whatever the days are that I meet with other people. But that I indeed, I spend time intimately with my father, knowing that he loves me and that I love him. And get over the beating myself up because I didn't do it right yesterday. I wanted to journal 17 times this week and I only journaled twice. Okay, is that a problem? Oh yeah. Why? I don't know. It's because everybody else journals. Did I tell you I wanted you to journal 17 times? No. Then why are you beating yourself up? I don't know. Okay, let's work on that. Do you see what I'm saying? We 
we need to just be in his presence. Paul said, and I don't remember if it's Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians, quite frankly, but Paul said, pray without ceasing. Thank you, Mary. Ephesians. Mary knows she's got it better than me. But seriously, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means be a Brother Lawrence, for heaven's sakes. Talk to God all day long. Make it part of your normal life to talk to God. I'll tell you, I know somebody like that right now. I won't call them out because they're here. And I don't want to embarrass them. But I know someone like that. They're literally every day walking around just talking to God, talking out loud. The world might think they're kind of goofy, but all they're worried about is communing with their father. And you see it in the way that they live their life. So I encourage you guys, don't be a Brother Lawrence. Be yourself. Be authentic. Be real with God. Tell him what you want. Let him know your heart's desire. He already knows it, but he wants to hear you talk to him. And then whatever he lays before you, do it. That's it. That's all i got to say. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you and I praise you and I give you glory. And God, I ask that you would help all of us to glow. In your name I pray.